0: Imagine, someone came to your house 30, 80, or even 150 years after you moved out. They dug up the floorboards, peeled back the wallpaper, and moved all of the remaining appliances, searched through every hiding place and secret corner. What would they find? What would the things you left behind say about you, about the society in which you lived? This is exactly what happened at the tenements of 103 and 97 Orchard Street, the buildings that make up the Tenement Museum. Many of the things that we know about our former residents come from city records and personal documents, family stories told by the residents themselves or by their descendants, and years and years of research. But they also come from the things that the former residents left behind. When immigrants, migrants, and refugees moved into tenements like 97 or 103 Orchard Street, they came from all over the world. And they came with their possessions, their stuff. Sometimes they didn't have much, but the things that they brought with them and the things that they acquired once here helped shape their new identities as Americans. But residents had to be choosy about what to bring with them, what to buy, and what to hold on to. Space was limited. Really limited. Think about this. 97 Orchard Street alone contained 22 households at one time. That's 22 apartments, 22 families, all in 325-square-foot units. That's 22 families' stuff. All the things that they have— in very small spaces, no modern amenities, no conveniences, and no closets. And what the people who lived there did with all of that stuff is part of what brings the history of the building to life. Why did we find a can of curry powder from the 1920s at 97 Orchard Street, when at that time the building was largely populated by Ashkenazi Jews? Why did someone leave a half-eaten bagel behind in a fireplace? How did a bunch of raspberries get preserved for nearly 100 years, And what can they teach us about the everyday lives of our residents? A large part of what the museum considers their most valuable finds, an average person might consider, well, trash. But at the Tenement Museum, these are the objects that make up our permanent collection. This is the seed that was planted when we began our tour of the Tenement Museum storage facility, where they keep the majority of their collection. And this thought stuck with me. When we move, The things that we leave behind are often quickly forgotten. So the idea that when we're long gone, our things will tell stories about who we were, how we lived and ate, or even how we became Americans, well, that's a lot to consider. And sometimes the things we throw away without a second thought, like an old curry can or a scrap of food like a bagel, or even an empty bottle of whiskey, well, actually can be a lot more valuable than we think. My name is Amanda Adler-Brennan, and you're listening to How to Be American. On this episode, we'll take a tour of the Tenement Museum's main storage facility, located right inside our offices at 91 Orchard Street, and where much of the museum's collection is housed. We'll learn about some of the most interesting and surprising things in it, and meet the museum's keeper of treasures.
1: So we'll open up a few drawers, we'll open up a few cabinets, and we'll kind of take a look at some of the... Uh, items that we've discovered in our historic buildings over the years, Um, and maybe we'll start here with this uh, cabinet number four, what's behind door number four, Um, and let's see, yeah, this is the right one, all right. One of my, this is Dave uh,
0: Favalaro a colleague of mine. He's the guy with and the keys to the, the collection. I've been working with the museum for a uh, number of years, but I've never you know, had the opportunity to check out the permanent collection up close or have, have a look powder. at where it's kept. Yeah. Uh, so this was a real treat.
1: dates probably from the 1920s or 1930s. And you know, as you could see, um, it is, is quite rusted. Right. So um, this was the
0: I know the museum manages their collection slightly cabin. differently than other similar institutions. But I honestly didn't know what to expect. When I got down to the storage facility, I was pleasantly surprised. There were bright overhead neon lights, row after row of drawers for cataloging objects, wire bins for larger items, and back shelves full of antiques in various shapes and sizes. Drawer after drawer opened to so many interesting finds and oddities. And thankfully, the only mice that I saw were the preserved ones that are actually part of the collection. After taking the tour with Dave, I couldn't wait to get him into the studio to dig a little bit deeper.
1: My name is David Favaloro, and I'm the director of curatorial affairs at the Tenement Museum. Uh, So what that means is I lead the museum's curatorial department and you know, about half of what I do on a regular basis, um, you know, is research, exhibit development, really working with the content and interpretation of the museum. Uh, and then the other half of what I do really in collaboration with the museum's collections manager and some of our other staff on the education department side as well. So really very typical museum type uh, activities, although we sort of do that a little bit differently, I think, than some of our peer Uh, institutions.
0: What brought you to the Tenement Museum? How did you get your start there?
1: So I've been with the Tenement Museum for 16 years. I grew up in the New York metro area. I had no interest in the history of New York City until I went to take a uh, public history course.
0: As part of a public history course in grad school, Dave visited the Lower East Side and fell in love with the history of New York and with the Tenement Museum. In 2004, came across a job listing for a curatorial assistant position.
1: I said, hey, I'll you know, throw throw my application in the ring and we'll see what happens and I got hired and so here we are, 2020.
0: I found that most people who are drawn to the museum tend to have stories of their own to tell. So when Dave sat down to talk with me for this episode, I took it as an opportunity to find out a bit more about Dave himself. I asked him whether he was drawn here because of his family's own immigrant history.
1: You know, I don't was not very interested in that um, that history until I joined the staff of the museum, my own kind of genealogy. In fact, I've probably done more research on other people's families than than my own. Uh, but kind of broadly, you know, my um, father side of the family really goes back to Italy and, and in fact, Palermo, Sicily. Uh, and so, um, you know, one of my ancestors, my father's um grandfather, my great-grandfather, whose name was Frank Favaloro, came from Palermo, Sicily uh, in 1910 and went straight out to Brooklyn. He worked in the Brooklyn Navy Yard.
0: We talked about his mother's side, too. His mother's parents were German immigrants. They came to the United States in the early 1950s after World War II. In Minsk, his great-grandmother was killed by Nazis in a ghetto.
1: You know, I never had the opportunity to ask those grandparents those kinds of questions because they passed away uh, really before my interest uh, as a professional historian, museum professional, uh, really sort of um, came into being. So I have all sorts of questions I would have asked them now. And, you know, they moved straight out to the suburbs on Long Island and, you know, really divorced themselves from that German identity, which now to me makes a lot of sense because, hey, I'm from Germany and it's the 19 early 1950s, five or six years after World War II ends and people would probably think you are a Nazi.
0: Dave has a good point. People's migration stories and immigrant experiences are heavily tied to the time in which they live. And the things that they live with are not only a reflection of where they've come from, but also of who they become once in America. I wanted to know more about the objects that some of our former residents have left behind. But first, I needed to hear about who these residents actually were. And how their homes became our museum to better understand what makes these finds so special.
1: You know, I think sometimes um, when we say Tenement Museum, if you've never visited with us, that may be slightly confusing because the Tenement Museum is very much a historic house museum. We tell uh, the stories of actual former residents. The majority of them were immigrants uh, migrants or refugees or their children who lived in either 97 Orchard Street, which is a tenement in the middle of the block on Orchard Street between Delancey and Broom Street. That building was built in 1863 during the middle of the American Civil War when the Lower East Side uh, was not known as the Lower East Side. It was said known as Klein Deutschland or Little Germany because it was predominantly populated by immigrants from what you today would call Germany, German-speaking immigrants. You would have asked them, where are you from? They wouldn't have said Germany. They would have said, I'm from Bavaria or I'm from uh, wurttemberg I'm from Berlin, I'm from Hanover, etc. because the German state doesn't exist, the German nation doesn't exist, as we would recognize it until a few years later in 1871.
0: 97 Orchard served as a residential building for more than 70 years. But in 1935, the building was effectively condemned because of New York State's new multiple dwellings law. In a nutshell, overcrowded buildings were declared uninhabitable if residents didn't have adequate air and light, proper sanitation, and access to provisions for fire hazards. 97 Orchard still has its original wooden staircase, a major residential fire hazard. After being rediscovered in 1988, 97 Orchard Street was first renovated for tour safety in the early 1990s and opened to the public for tours just a few years later. Dave also gave me a breakdown of the museum's other tenement, 103 Orchard Street, where our newest tour, Under One Roof, takes place.
1: And then, of course, the 103 Orchard Street building, Uh, It's really kind of interesting in the sense that it was actually built as three separate tenements in 1888. uh, And as part of a, um, you know, a series of changes to the Lower East Side, really when the Williamsburg Bridge is built in 1903 and these three buildings, uh, formerly known as 103, 105 and 107 Orchard Street in the middle of the block became all of a sudden on the end of the block.
0: 103 Orchard is just a few paces away from 97. While they're both tenements, they're really quite different from one another. The widening of Delancey Street to accommodate traffic to the Williamsburg Bridge, combined with the construction of adjacent buildings, caused 103 Orchard Street and its apartments to undergo significant alterations after 1888.
1: The structure that we have now at 103 Orchard Street really has a kind of really funky, interesting layout in terms of, you know, none of the apartments are uniform. They're all of different sizes. Uh, And a lot of the visitors, in fact, to the Underwood Roof Tour, I think, are surprised at the size of of what's, you know, a relatively large tenement apartment by Lower East Side standards.
0: And certainly when you compare the rooms at 103 to the rooms at 97, there is that noticeable Difference, that 97 is considerably more uniform and and smaller than the...
1: Right, yeah, I mean, you're talking about 325 square foot apartments, approximately four per floor, compared to what's, you know, nearly a 900 square foot apartment, you know, that has two actual bedrooms and, you know, this sort of thing, so... It's a big difference. A big difference. Yeah.
0: The apartments at 97 Orchard Street were home to Germans, as Dave said, and also Ashkenazi Jews from all corners of Eastern Europe. Russia, Ukraine, Romania, and more. There were Sephardic Jews from the Ottoman Empire, in what's now Turkey and Greece. There were Irish and Italian immigrants, too. While certain groups definitely formed a majority in the tenements of the Lower East Side, that didn't mean that there weren't people from all different backgrounds living in this area. Today, that mixture has only grown to include people from every corner of the globe.
1: Particularly on our Under One Roof tour, for example, we tell the story of a family of Holocaust survivors who lived in that building in the mid to late 1950s. uh, A family of Puerto Rican migrants who lived in that building uh, really in the 1960s, 70s and beyond. uh, And, um, you know, Chinese immigrant family who lived in that building in the 1960s, 70s and, and beyond as well.
0: I think Dave put it best during our tour of the basement when he described the museum's permanent collection as a resource for understanding. Because despite the fact that a lot of these objects are central to our knowledge about life in our tenements, most of these objects can't actually be seen by visitors who come to the museum. The way the museum uses these objects, and even the way they choose to store and categorize them, well, it's a little bit different than most other museums, or even other historic houses. And because the collection is so unique, so special, and so weird, I asked Dave if he could describe it to me in three words. Here's what he said.
1: In three words? Wow, that's really hard. Uh (laughs) (laughs) to do that in such (laughs) three words um can it be a (laughs) non-sequitur uh so yeah i mean i think i'd probably say you know first that it is um idiosyncratic right it's fragmentary and um it is uh utilitarian i think uh probably the words I'd, i'd you know grab to describe it.
0: And so what sets the museum apart in terms of how we understand and manage our collection?
1: Uh, So we don't have kind of a gallery where we do sort of text on the wall or, or um, you know, sort of objects and cases and, and so on. So, you know, we can have two separate sections of the larger collection. One of those is the permanent collection. And those are all items that have a direct link to either 97 Orchard Street, 103 Orchard Street, or one of those buildings, former residents, landlords, or uh, or shopkeepers. And oftentimes, those are things that we've uh, discovered, left behind in the building, uh, and um, you know, as I said before, fragmentary is is really kind of, you know, in some ways a, a, a particular way to describe those things. They generally remain in storage because we don't have a gallery space to um, share them with the public. So the other section of the collection is what we refer to as the study collection, and that's really what you see on display when you take a tour at the Tenement Museum. So those items, um, as compared to the permanent collection, uh, don't have a direct link to either building or anybody who lived there owned the buildings or worked there, but they have been acquired uh, as period, they're authentic period items. Say, we're interpreting the story of uh, the Baldizi family in the early 1930s at 97 North Street, an Italian immigrant family. We do a lot of research over the course of years um, about really what that family would have owned. In th- this particular case, as some of um, the folks who have visited the museum may know, they um, were able to share their memories. In fact, one of their daughters, Josephine Baldiz, was able to share quite a bit about what their home looked like. The
0: museum's been lucky enough to actually talk to some of the former residents and their families. And some, like the Baldizzi family, featured on the Hard Times tour, have even donated personal objects to the museum. But for others, especially families who lived at 97 Orchard in the 19th century, we've had to do a little bit more historic research. Some of the objects are authentic to the families discussed on the tours, but most of the objects, as you see them at the museum, have been matched to our families and our apartments through years of research. The museum then uses these objects to tell the true stories of the families who lived in our buildings, and who would have used things like these in their daily lives.
1: These are working class, um, you know, immigrant, migrant, and refugee stories. We're telling, of course. The most of the things that we have were, you know, mass-produced products. Even in the middle of the nineteenth century, these weren't expensive things. Um, so the museums perspective has always been that we could acquire new uh, ones, not brand new, of course, but, you know, a replacement, basically, if something were to get damaged, because, you know, for us, it's essential that you're able to stand inside these 325 square foot apartments in 97 Orchard Street, for example, hear the story of how this family might have carved out a life there, uh, adapted to life in America, uh, thought about how to sort of, you know, negotiate the landscape of making choices about, maintenance of traditions, about, you know, things like learning English, about work life, about culture, etc.
0: What are some of your favorite items that have been found at the museum?
1: One of my favorite is a, and was sort of a mystery when we discovered it uh, in a ceiling on the fourth floor of 97 Orchard Street in early 2008, really as part of the work for um bringing the uh, what's now the irish outsiders tour which features the story of the moore family irish immigrants who lived in the building in 1869 this is uh not from 1869 but from the 19 uh 20s or, or early 1930s and it's a um it's a sort of rusted um, can of dirty uh, curry powder, which, you know, immediately struck me as really odd. Right. It's not the kind of thing you might expect to find in a building that at that particular moment in time was home to, you know, mostly East European Jewish immigrants or uh, Italian immigrants. Like, what were they doing cooking with yellow curry powder? You know, what, what could they have been doing with this sort of thing? Uh, and, um, you know, there uh, I had an intern probably now about 10 years ago. Uh, whose name was Melissa Reby. And she was really interested in immigrant foodways. And, you know, what that said to us uh, from her research was that, there was kind of, you know, what she characterized as sort of like a curry craze uh, that was taking place in kind of the 1920s and early 1930s. And that you know, that was just really sort of interesting to me because again, here are these, you know, immigrants from places where you wouldn't expect them perhaps to be using that kind of curry uh, and, you know, maybe trying new dishes, maybe incorporating that into some of the things they were familiar with. We don't exactly know, but it also really spoke to this idea. I think some historians have uh, tackled over the last couple of decades that immigrants in the early 20th century uh, and in the late 19th century as well, participating and really engaging with what what is, you know, mass consumer culture. This is a brand name thing uh, that um, somebody decided to buy at the store and may also have been used by somebody who was completely of a different background than them. And so, you know, historians- for
0: years, historians have studied the role of immigrants and migrants in this type of mass consumer culture as a way of establishing a kind of common ground as Americans. Buying and using products that are readily available in one's new country can instantly make a newcomer appear or even feel more American. And it's not just a feeling. Because their engagement in this mass consumerism, especially in the early 20th century, does actually make them more American. And food and the way people eat and cook, especially when they're cooking foods that may have otherwise not have been available to them, can say a lot about this. It makes them more like their neighbors simply by having and eating the same things as them. And being familiar with those things, having access to these items, again, only contributes to their complicated journey of becoming American. But it's not only what immigrants, migrants, and refugees were eating that reflected their American experience. It was also the clothing and household goods that they were purchasing and using day to day. And some of these bits and bobs were purchased in 97 Orchard Street itself. For the whole of our building's lifetime, the ground floor served as retail spaces. So some of the things we found were simply backstock of retail items left behind. But these objects can still tell us a lot about the people who lived in our tenements and on the Lower East Side in general at the time that these shops were still in business.
1: Uh, We've discovered things like, um, you know, a whole sort of host of cosmetic products from the early 20th century, really from the 1920s and the 1930s. And, you know, some of the businesses that inhabited the storefront commercial spaces at 97 Orchard Street appear to have been what they called jobbers at the time. Jobbers are sort of like wholesalers.
0: They would purchase a large number of certain types of goods, store them, and then send them off to retailers around the city. One of 97 Orchard's former tenants, a man called Willie Share, was a jobber who sold cosmetics in the early 20th century.
1: So we have, you know, all these really kind of interesting cosmetic products and it's a window into what somebody was doing for a living as an immigrant uh, shopkeeper. Right. Um, And then, you know, I've also really been, I think, um, both surprised and interested with some of like the organic materials that have survived all of these years. And so we found, you know, things like I think probably one of the most interesting to me is a bag of. Uh, desiccated or, you know, they're dried out raspberries, which again, you know, speaks to how immigrants, perhaps surprisingly to both some of our visitors and some of our listeners, right, uh, had access to fresh fruit and, you know, would regularly buy these things. They were, these were discovered in a little paper bag and, you know, you sort of appear in there and are all dried out.
0: When imagining an urban working class neighborhood during the late 19th and early 20th century, A find like the raspberries might come as a surprise to some. These items needed to be transported in by horse cart and rail. But fresh fruit and vegetables were available to residents of buildings like ours, through the massive network of push carts that lined the streets several blocks long throughout the neighborhood. At a time when reformers were campaigning for change, or even demolition of certain buildings because of unlivable conditions, residents of tenements like ours did have access to certain small luxuries. Things like fresh fruit, things that had to be imported, And maybe to them, it wasn't even that big of a deal. I mean, these were just left behind, right? That's one of the things that makes the museum so unique. We've had this incredible opportunity to dig deep within the walls, the floorboards, and the fireplaces. And especially in the case of 97 Orchard, where the building was preserved and virtually untouched for years, we've been able to look at our residents' lives in a way that's never really been done before.
1: You know, I think... uh scholars of immigration or 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 new york city you know have um pour over documents or listen to oral histories or review other kinds of sources that have been left behind the historical record but nobody's ever had the opportunity to really kind of do the deep research in a building like 97 orchard or 103 orchard really kind of excavate its past in all the different ways not just with objects but you know in all sorts of different ways uh to kind of glean you know how something Unfold in one particular building and what that might say as an example, right? Is it unique in some cases? Probably. Is it representative in others? I think definitely. Uh, and so, you know, what is what does that say and how does that kind of speak to how we understand this kind of broader topic that's important to us? You know, it, again, it's really difficult for us to say this particular thing is linked to this particular person. I think, you know, where we do have that kind of information, it is tied to the, um, the businesses that were there because, you know, they were both there, the businesses um, into the 20th century, into the you know 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s uh, and 80s. And, you know, they had receipts and invoices and things with their names on them. So you can really tie that to a specific person. I mean, I think one of the most interesting ones, right, is and this the museum discovered relatively early on. And, in, and I think a really powerful way continues to be a story that resonates both with the museum staff itself. We continue to want to tell the story and with visitors when they experience it in different ways. So it's not part of a regular tour. We've done it in kind of, you know, special events and and and, and special tours over the years. Uh, but this is a, you know, what you would think of as kind of a handbill, uh, kind of small advertisement, if you will, uh, for Dora Meltzer, who uh, was, it says on the handbill, she was a promise right like a fortune teller some of the research we've done we don't know dora's entire story right and certainly don't have time to tell the entire story here uh but she likewise was an east european jewish immigrant appears to have been living there with some of her extended family uh and was you know uh uh, essentially a kind of a palmist somebody telling people's fortunes and it's a it's just a really cool um advertisement you know with the hand on it and uh one side or some of them i should say because we've discovered several of these uh really mostly on the first floor of the the museum building of 97 orchard street and um as you might expect right it's some of them are in english some of them are in yiddish uh and i think that's yeah again kind of a really interesting has has somebody's name on it right so that's gonna kind of really tell you uh specifically who that's who that's tied to
0: so I'm i'm gonna take you back a little bit to that curry can again what kind of insight can we gain about the way that immigrants um, living in buildings like ninety seven Orchard became American through their access to different types of foods? We kind of so often think about immigrants bringing their own foods here and then sharing them with the people that were here. But it sounds like you're finding evidence of them, you know, taking from other immigrant cultures,
1: yeah. I think, you know, taking from other immigrant cultures, taking from the broader, American, what you might think of as quote unquote American culture. I mean, I think that's interesting, too, because what is American food? It's really sort of the byproduct of this complex interchange and exchange between, you know, all these different foodways that have come from different places. And I think, you know, historians who have studied this in great depth have really pointed to the role that they characterize as the abundance of America as compared to, say, in this case, Europe, like you could have access, say, in the late 19th and early 20th century to meat in a in a way that you didn't back in Ireland or Germany or Italy, or et cetera, right? So, you know, meat becoming a real staple of the American diet or things that you would say, you know, as an Italian immigrant, maybe only uh, eat as, on festival days or special days or holidays or, right, sort of religious holidays, these kinds of things, or that were uh, predominantly eaten by much wealthier uh, people in, you know, sicily or something of that nature much more available here uh and um accessible given the 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 wages uh you know available to to immigrants as, as compared to what was available in europe of course so um but yeah i mean it's interesting to think about what that interplay might have been like even in the halls of a specific building when your neighbor is from sicily and you're from uh, you're a Jewish immigrant from maybe what's today Lithuania is one of our stories uh, tells us uh, in that period in the in the early 1930s and really forming these interesting uh, bonds and
0: and so the idea that they're kind of like becoming more American by but I mean just the idea that an Eastern European Jewish family and an Italian family living next to each other in New York would would try to become more American by buying a can of curry powder
1: <laughs> sure. you
0: know it seems it's that very American exchange of culture there,
1: which is. Right. I mean, I would thing. even go so far to say that they on, you know, on the ground, so to speak, are creating what it means to be American at that particular time and what, how we think today about what it means to be American. They're creating what that is, what we mean by America, American food, American culture, etc. you know, in these hallways and in these rooms on a daily basis. Um, and to think about this is one building. There are many, many more stories like this uh, if you sort of expand that out exponentially. And so, yeah, to what we think of as today, American food, what it means to be American, these folks are really creating that on a kind of day to day basis.
0: And so other than food, you mentioned most of the items that you found were these mass consumer, mass produced items. How did the access to these types of items later in the building's life affect the people, the experience of the people living in the building?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that both access and and engagement with mass consumer culture and what we mean by that, of course, is, you know, brand name things that a lot of our listeners would recognize today, Durkee. Uh, spices, or you know, Maxwell House coffee, or I'm um, trying to think of some of the other brand names here. A lot of names that you would recognize. Um, we have cans of beer from places that no longer exist, but you know, were were relatively brand names uh, at the uh, relatively well-known brand names at that at that particular time. Uh, and what this, of course, says is that you know, not only are you bringing your own culture with you, your culture of food ways, and that's being shaped by what's available here in America as compared to maybe where you had come from, but that you and your neighbor are, you know, buying the same thing from the grocery store shelves uh, and having that kind of common ground even though you may be from different places of different backgrounds. And so I think that's a really important idea among other things, including, you know, listening to those same programs on the radio uh, that, you know, your neighbor of of a different background might listen to or going to the same, um, you know, sort of movies or films at the uh, movie house, right? That these kinds of things participating in a kind of shared uh, culture uh, in some ways for uh, the first time really was a common ground touchstone for a lot of folks.
0: How did the availability of these types of products um, change the way that the native New Yorkers saw these new immigrants?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I have um, a specific answer to that or that I, you know, that we know. I mean, I think the interchange of all these kind of uh, ideas, peoples and, and traditions and. Industrial America and 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 you know the relative affordability of things like meat and other sorts of products really um, create what we mean by America and American food and so on. And I think one of the things that I am thinking when you ask that question is a lot of these brands actually are are sort of established by immigrants or their children. I'm trying to think of examples here, but uh, there are all sorts of brands that today we think of as this is a you know an American product that, as you were saying, you recognize on the shelf uh, whether in the grocery store or in a museum exhibit, uh, but were, were um, you know, created by uh, somebody who came here for, from somewhere else. It's it's not uh, a complete sort of top-down process, meaning that it's not like some, you know, native-born person creates some product and immigrants receive that and and that impacts them and shapes their lives. It's really a two-way sort of thing, you know, way of, of uh, it's communicating in some way, right? So again, I think, you know, whatever moment in time we might be talking about, these folks are really creating uh, what we mean by, um, you know, America in real time.
0: When you think about it, it makes sense that the food industry would have been an easy in for new immigrants, migrants and refugees in America. That's been true from the very beginning and it's still true today. But in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, newcomers in America had a connection to an often growing community and an understanding of their cultural preferences they were familiar with the tastes of that community and more aware of where those tastes were not being met in the American market. New Americans might have had access to importing connections from their home country, making it easier to set up those arrangements. Sometimes their products even caught on with other buyers, and new American brands were created. Many of our most loved products are from companies that were founded by newcomers or their children. Well-known and still popular brands like Progresso or Goya, were founded by new immigrants in the early 20th century, from Spain and Sicily, respectively. And in 1869, son of German immigrants Henry J. Heinz opened a wheelbarrow selling homemade horseradish on the streets of Pittsburgh, and Heinz's famous 57 varieties was born. So in in terms of that, having access to these products makes this experience of becoming American uh, a little bit more accessible maybe for these people living in in buildings like ours. Um, How much was the idea that owning these products made you more American? How much was that reality and how much was it perception?
1: I mean, I think isn't perception really the important part of that? There, like somebody's perception of I've purchased this this name brand product, and um, you know, it's not something associated with my own ethnic identity that that makes me American. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of interviews that we've done. Uh, with folks who called 97 Orchard or 103 Orchard home over the years and, you know, really, yeah, pr- participating in mass consumer culture, making them feel like am- Americans, right? We tell the story, for example, of, uh, this is a little bit later than sort of some of the sort of time periods that we've been talking about, but and this is in the 1950s, but we tell the story of Bella Epstein, who is the child of Holocaust survivors that lived at 103 Orchard Street in the 1950s. 50s, mid to late 1950s. And so, you know, she really told this powerful story about the first record player. She was born here in, in the late 1940s, really very soon after her, her parents arrived as essentially what you would think of as refugees from a displaced persons camp uh, in in Europe, having survived the Holocaust, having survived the Nazi concentration camps and so on. And so, you know, interestingly, she tells this story about uh, not only getting the first record player, but uh, getting a Paul Anka record, right? Oh, Diana, some listeners might, recognize the name of that song and you know to her she tells this really powerful story of that that made her feel like an american that made her an american
0: um, so from what we've learned, it's possible that the things we consider junk might end up in a museum one day <laughs> from what you're saying. What's the one object that you currently own that you hope will maybe end up in a museum collection?
1: Oh, wow. this is yeah, this is such an interesting question because we often do uh, like icebreakers among the staff <laughs> this question. So that tells you that we're thinking about this on a daily basis, which is both um useful to us for for our work, but but just generally interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, perhaps because of, you know, the ties or lack thereof to my own immigrant story. I really don't have things that have been passed down. I have some of my grandparents' immigration papers and things, but somebody might collect that, I guess, perhaps. But, you know, the thing, um, and I think what's interesting about identity uh, and self-identity is, right, it sort of changes over time. So, like, how should somebody think of you at any point in their life? One of the most um, impactful experiences I've had has been working at the Tenement Museum. So things that are associated with that, like, is somebody going to find my business card <laughs> and put it in a museum or like papers from uh, from where, you know, I worked. But yeah, I mean, it's really kind of, you know, working at the museum has defined uh, my adult life and and in some ways and been a really sort of powerful way to think about, you know, my own identity and, Um, You know, the kind of place that myself and my family have in in this country and, and what it is, what's becoming.
0: It's so funny because for me, when I hear about this, my instinct is, what don't I want people to find in a museum? You know, so much of this stuff was hidden or fell into slats. And, you know, it almost even seems like maybe they forgot that they hid this item somewhere that you worry like, wow, what what are the things that you don't want found that you've left behind?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think, you know, some things, yes, it's pretty clear that somebody hid them there, right? Because they were, you know, these were small apartments for the most part. And if you had a sizable family, I averaged five or six individuals, but could you know, be as large as 10 or 11 people. And, you know, where's your private space is a really interesting question. Or what's the concept of privacy? Think about, you know, most of us, uh, or many of us, I should say, myself included, I had my own room as a child and these sorts of things, like as a teenager, where do you put your things, uh, you know, that you don't want your parents to find or your siblings to find. But I also think, you know, the majority of the stuff that is in the museum's collection of the various objects are just the kind of things that you cast off on the tours, when I talk about these things, I say like, imagine somebody finds the junk mail that fell through the crack of your floor a hundred years from now, and it's just like something that you didn't pay any attention to, and somebody's gonna try to glean the details of your everyday life and the import of that a century or so later uh, is a really interesting thing to think about. But yeah, like what 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 don't you want people? It's terrifying. Uh, to know? I guess you know the way I think about that also is that by that point in time, I'm long gone. And whatever somebody's gonna conclude about my life, I wasn't a famous person or an important person or, you know, uh, in any sort of uh literal way or, you know, the way we typically would use that term. So, you know, hey, whatever somebody's gonna find out and you, I I also think that's really sort of um useful. You know, maybe the um my, one of the things I, I think that's really powerful about telling the stories of real people uh in the setting that we do at the museum is that you're having the chance to interact with in in of course story form a real person who has personal failings and internal contradictions and they're humans and you know they're like you and i they have They have all sorts of things that they probably didn't want anybody to know about, but this really, I think, allows our visitors to sort of uh, empathize in a way that they wouldn't if this was just a composite character uh, created a story of a a quote unquote Italian immigrant or a Jewish immigrant uh, based upon, you know, research and things like that. That This is a real person. uh, They really lived and, you know, hey, they failed, they succeeded, they loved, they cried, all these kind of things. That's powerful.
0: Is there anything else that you want to tell listeners about the museum before we go?
1: Visit the museum and see some of these things in person and face-to-face. We'd love to meet you.
0: If you can, come down to the museum, take a look at the collection we do have on display, and ask questions about the objects that help us interpret history and remember the past. But you don't have to see these objects firsthand to really understand why the museum values them so much. Some of the things that Dave and I discussed, like the spice can, which reflected the curry craze of the 1920s and 30s, can tell us so much about the people who used them, who lived in our buildings. For me, it was thrilling to see these objects firsthand. To look at some of the things left behind by residents whose lives we at the museum already spend so much time thinking about. That's one of the things that makes the Tenement Museum so unique. It's history that's constantly developing and changing. And we do our best to tell the stories of the families who occupied our buildings. But we can only tell the stories as we know them now, and that develops over time as we continue to research, excavate, and learn more. Who knows? Maybe 10 years from now, we'll discover something beneath a floorboard that we never knew was there, and the whole story will change. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Till next time, I'm Amanda Adler-Brennan for the Tenement Museum.
1: Hey listeners, I'm Jazz Chana, the Associate Director of PR for the Tenement Museum. This episode was produced by Rachel Davila-Ramirez. Off the mic is our podcast team. Angela Serratore, Katie Lopez, Cassandra Pena, Emily Mitzner, Jamie Salen, Katie Heimer, Michelle Moon, David Favallaro, and David Eng. Our music is provided by Title Card Music. Additional music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks to CDM Studios, Charles de Montebello, Tucker Dalton, and the entire CDM staff. Please rate, comment and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks for listening.